Welcome to another episode of Dr. Doctor, the award-winning radio show and podcast featuring your physician host, Dr. Tom McGovern. And I'm Dr. Andrew Mullally, and this is where we and our guests discuss relevant and health-related topics, always from a Catholic perspective. And Dr. Doctor is brought to you in part by the generous underwriting of CMF Curo. Learn more at mycatholichealthcare.org and live your Catholic faith in your healthcare with CMF Curo. Today, our guest will be heard across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Returning to Dr. Doctor is Dr. Tim Millay. He's an orthopedic surgeon who is famous among the co-hosts here for giving us the phrase, motion is lotion. Chris Stroud loves to repeat that. Um, he appeared almost four years ago to talk about common back problems. Uh, today, he returns to talk about some other common problems with bones and joints. We're going to focus on the shoulder and the knee today. So, Andrew, how is this relevant to our listeners? Well, everybody's got them. You yeah, know? there you go. <laughs> everybody's got them. I guess that's the, the first thing I notice. But no, I think uh, Tim's obviously great to talk to. And orthopedics is one of those things that really affects most people throughout their life. And definitely, if you include loved ones and family members, everybody's dealt with somebody suffering from orthopedic issues. The, the joints in particular, the large joints, I'm very interested to see what he has to say because those are the things, especially this time of year, my family does fantasy football, Tom. I don't know if, if you guys have ever gotten into that. <laughs> no. And uh, it's, it's been a, injuries. Yeah, this is what gets injured. How do they get injured? What do you do? And uh, I think I think the listeners are going to love it because many people have suffered injuries themselves. I don't know. Have you had to see an orthopedist before, Tom? Oh, yes, yes. My my football career was cut short, mercifully, because <laughs> uh, <laughs> I was playing I was playing both ways at offensive and defensive end in tenth grade football, and there was one game I was doing a down block on this enormous uh, tackle, and uh, my right shoulder got dislocated and wouldn't relocate, and so Ouch. both of us defensive ends or offensive, we played both ways. We were both in the ambulance at the same time with opposite shoulders. His was his left shoulder was separated. Mine was dislocated and out of joint and had to go to the hospital to get it put back in. And, um, and, and what I learned back then in football is I thought too much. And I learned that when you start thinking if you might get injured, you get injured in football. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah it ruined so. my, my pitching career came to an end in baseball because of that. Um, that's why my kids, I didn't have any of them play a bad contact sport like that. I mean, people love it, but wow, the toll it can take on you. So I've had two shoulder surgeries, one at 16 and one at, um, gosh, about uh, 10, 12 years ago, around the age of 50, because it just shredded even more. Man, yeah, it's the, the orthopedic stuff is like the gift that keeps on giving. I mean, people run into it in the, the younger ages as well, the teenage years with sports and stuff. And then yep. as we get older, everybody, for the most part, uh, gets some form of arthritis and just wear and tear type injuries. And so everybody starts thinking about their shoulders at some point. Well, it, and what I've learned is some of it is, like you said, it's natural wear and tear and age-related. I'm interested to get into that with Tim. They're like, what can we expect? I mean, it sounds like, you know, some of the older patients I treat, it's like rotator cuff is like a rite of passage, the problems with that. So how often in your practice in, in family medicine, like daily or weekly, do you see someone with a shoulder problem? Oh, I, I'd say routinely. Definitely orthopedic stuff every day for sure. Shoulders and knees, definitely daily. It's funny. In family medicine, it's it's rarely like one problem. Usually we're covering like a multitude. Exactly. Every, everybody's shoulders hurt and everybody's knees hurt, you know. And I remember the first time I felt my knees, and I, maybe some of our listeners will recognize this too, not really a pain, but it happens in your mid-30s and you say, what is that? <laughs> uh, I, I felt my knee. I didn't injure it. I just feel it. I'm aware that it's there. That's weird because you don't have that when you're 18 years old unless you get injured, you know? That's right. And so uh, it's it's something that definitely we deal with on a, on a routine basis, but we're always happy to to have the orthopedic folks around, especially when we need surgery. But there's a lot of stuff. I, I'm interested in the shoulder there's a lot of tricky to diagnose things in the shoulder. Mm -hmm. uh, you'd think it'd be easy. The knees may be a little bit easier for, for family yep. docs. Shoulders, very tricky. There's a lot of different things that can be going on there. 
Do you? I, I always liked uh, the orthopedic exam because you could figure things out by just laying hands on somebody and doing certain maneuvers. What do you yeah. think? I thought I love it too. You know, everybody's different. I think it it depends a lot on your training, especially in primary care. You always remember the people who taught you things. You never think about it yes. going through it, but later you remember, oh, doctor so and so taught me this, and it's just emblazoned in your memory. And uh, I, I had a really good person teaching me a shoulder exam and it kind of stuck with me and it, it's kind of nice. It's one of my more efficient exams because it's like a checklist. Okay, I'm going to do this, 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 check these things out. And then boom, it kind of spits out the possibilities of what's going on. And uh, it's a lot different than, you know, it's kind of the antithesis might be like abdominal pain. My belly hurts. Holy cow, it could be a lot That's of things, hard. you know. And so obviously you get there either ways, but the orthopedic stuff is nice because, you know, you can press and see what hurts and move stuff around and see if, if it works or not or if there's weakness. And it's, uh, it's really rewarding in that way because you can feel confident giving people a diagnosis. So before we get to Tim, we have our medical trivia question of the day. Category is unsurprisingly bones. And we're not talking about the character on the original Star Trek. So the body is commonly said as an adult to possess 206 bones, over half of which are in the hands and feet. Questions, two of them. What is the smallest bone in the body? And what is the largest bone of the body? Many of you probably know, but we'll be back with the answer at the end of the show. But before that, and after this break on Dr. Doctor, we'll have Dr. Tim Millay and shoulder and knee problems. Uh, welcome back to Dr. Doctor. We are now joined by um, video link, satellite link. No, it's not satellite, it's the internet, however that works, with Tim Malay, who uh, is in Ohio, the quad, Ohio, Iowa, the other three-syllable, four-letter state in the United States. Tim is in the Quad Cities area where he worked as an, yeah, I'm just, uh, I'm just killing it here, where he worked as an orthopedic spine surgeon uh, at ORA Orthopedics in Davenport, Iowa, for 28 years, retiring during the pandemic. He is currently the chairman of the Healthcare Policy Committee for the Catholic Medical Association, doing a splendid job. He's also chairman of the 2023 CMA annual meeting, which will be held in Denver the weekend after Labor Day on the theme Courage in Medicine. He's been married to Beth for 43 years, holding at five children and currently with 15 grandchildren. Tim, welcome back to Dr. Doctor. Thank you, Tom. Thank you, Andrew. It's, a, it's really a privilege to be here. It's always fun. So we know that you have a previous life as a physical therapist when you met your wife, and then you went to medical school and became an orthopedic surgeon. So obviously, you've had this long-term love affair with the musculoskeletal system. You know, try to convince people. What's what's so groovy about that? What a nasty word. <laughs> Well, no, that's not, I'm older than you are, Tom. That's a very good word. <laughs> but the, uh, I like think it's a swell idea. Word, you know, a swell idea. Word. A swell yeah. idea. Yeah, exactly. But so, yeah, the, the primary impetus, and, and when that question really makes me think about, you know, uh, this, this habit I have of tunnel vision, because I can distinctly remember in, in high school, I'm playing all different sports, getting hurt. My buddies are getting hurt. And I like science classes. And in the guidance counselor's office, I see this three ring binder opened up to physical therapy. Mm. And, I, and it's, a, it's a picture of a guy working on somebody's knee. And I'm thinking, oh, oh you know, I'm, I, I'm pretty, pretty rudimentary understanding of illustrations. I said, I think, <laughs> I, I think that's what I want to do. So that's, that's where it all got started. And thanks be to God. It was one of those, you know, divine inspirations that I didn't recognize was divine at the time, because that's what set me on this path. Now, going to medical schools, totally different subject. I was not going, there was absolutely no way I was going to be an orthopedic surgeon. Absolutely none. I was going to be a neurologist because that's the kind of patients I worked with. And I loved the neurologists that I worked with. The orthopedic mm. surgeons, yeah, not so much. <laughs> so, so, but when I got to my third year of medical school, still planning to be a neurologist, I realized I loved those neurology dudes. I didn't like neurology. You yep. know, the specialty didn't really, I mean, it interests me to a point, but I think, and everybody kind of goes through this if in medical school, if not before. It just took me that long to, to recognize the difference between an interventionist personality and a managerial personality. And ah. I was not 
not a managerial personality. I totally underestimated that. And so this that's is a good lesson for the students who are listening here that you may really admire certain types of doctors, but you might think you'll like doing what they do, but it's two different things. Thank you for bringing that out, Tim. Absolutely. So because there are so many different orthopedic topics, we chose chose shoulders and knees. I'm not sure why, but um, let's do it. So, you know, the, the shoulder joint differs from the hip joint, uh, another ball and socket joint. But so let's start with the shoulder joint. How is that constructed? What is a ball and socket joint? Yeah, it, it, it truly is. I think you picked those two because if you've watched me walk and limp a little bit and you saw how hard how hard it was for me to raise my hand up. <laughs> but, no, the yeah, the the the, the conception of <clears throat> of the shoulder as a ball and socket joint, indeed that that's true. However, um, whereas the hip is truly a ball in a socket, mm-hmm. you have to think about the shoulder as more of like a teacup in a saucer. It's not the cup or the saucer is not conformed to the cup and the uh, cup or the teacup is actually larger than the saucer is when you look at its diameter across. So, so whereas the hip with a ball and socket where the socket envelops the ball in the shoulder, it just sits there like what we call the glenoid, which is the socket part and the humeral head, which is the ball part. So if there was nothing else wrapped around those, it's gone. It's just, it doesn't, your arm's going to hang down and it's, it's not going to be uh, intact. It's only held together by soft tissue, no bone tissue, just soft tissue around it. Tendons, ligaments, cartilage, muscles. That's the only thing that's holding it together. So the upside of the way the joint is, is manufactured is it is the most flexible it is it's kind of the if you look at all the joints like a family the, the shoulder is the wild child it's going to do whatever <laughs> it'll it'll do whatever it can it can go in all different directions at any given time but the price you pay for that is it can become unstable more than any other joint in the body because it doesn't have the mechanism the mechanical integrity to keep it intact so what is the labrum? So you mentioned the glenoid where the bone touches. Uh, it's actually part of the, the shoulder blade, right, that comes around. Um, but what is the, the labrum? Because we'll, we talk about injuries to that. Yeah, if you let's go back to that teacup and saucer uh, analogy. Yep. And imagine that you take some, some uh, clay or Play-Doh and wrap it around the rim of the saucer so that instead of it being the saucer being this deep, it ends up being about that deep. It just deepens okay. the socket. So the head still fit. It's got more stability in there. And, and, and I've been in this, in this uh, musculoskeletal rodeo long enough that the, la- <laughs> the labrum back in the dark ages during my residency, yeah, it was, one of, it was kind of like an appendix back in the dark ages. Yeah, you really don't, you know, it, isn't, it doesn't seem to be that important. And it's only been in the last really 20, 25 years that that has become a real significant clinical entity. You know, the, I feel like the labral tear is one of those things that it's always the, the patient you can never quite figure out. They're not getting better. It's like one of those diagnoses that you're like, oh, labral tear, where did that come from? Yeah. T- yeah. Tell us, what, what do patients experience when they have a labral tear? Yeah, with the labral tear, I mean, the symptoms are, they vary, but there are some commonalities from one patient to another. Pain is typically one of them. Uh, That is the most consistent one. Um, If it's a young, active individual, particularly someone who does repetitive overhead activities, classically a pitcher, uh, we see it in frontline volleyball players, anybody that's way up and doing forceful motions front to back, those are the ones that are prone to have a labral tear. And they will often describe a feeling of catching or a pinching kind of thing. Arm at their side, generally more comfortable. But as soon as they start to elevate, that's when the, the, the symptoms uh, start to develop. Clicking, popping. Um, and, you know, to, to your point, Andrew, the, the making a diagnosis, you know, it, it is true in medicine that if you shut up and listen long enough, the patient will tell you what's wrong. And I've found in, in working with shoulders, which 
fortunately became a diminishing part of my practice as years went by because the younger guys were doing things that I wasn't trained to do. I found it very, very difficult to not wait to get an MRI or, you know, a scope or something to figure out exactly what's going on. But by and large, there are common symptoms and signs that you can see that, and, and feel that help narrow it down significantly. So what, there's what another you part. You, well, I, I guess just as, as far as treatment as well, you know, there's so many different injuries. And I'll tell you, the family doctor brain, it's like you got medicines for pain. You've got injections of different types and physical therapy kind of in the middle and you got surgery. Um, what, where does this one fall as far as like a labral injury or tear? Right. A labral tear, how that is treated will depend to some degree, to sometimes a significant degree on who has the tear. So if I've got, you know, we have a minor league baseball team here on the East coast of Iowa. And if I've got a 19 year old minor league pitcher who just signed a big contract and he's going to work his way up the ranks and he's my patient, he's got a labral tear. That's not one we're going to, you know, that the team's not going to want to wait on it. And the, the player's not going to wait on it either. So in that instance where it is truly a livelihood type thing, if it's significant enough, you fix. You would think about operating straight away. Not not an emergent basis, but certainly uh, uh, somewhat expeditiously. But there are a lot of us out there that have labral tears, particularly over age 45, 50 or so, that are not symptomatic. And they're picked up incidentally. If they're having a rotator cuff surgery and at the time of the scope, you, you look inside the joint and you say, oh, there's a small tear. Well, if it's not bothering them, it shouldn't be bothering the surgeon either. Uh, and there's, you know, there, there's some thresholds where it's enough of a tear. You say, well, while we're here, we're going to take care of that at the same time. But um, it, it is very, very patient dependent about based on activity demands. If it's a patient that says, you know, I, 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 it started bugging me playing tennis, but tennis isn't that important to me. Well, if, if you're willing to give up tennis, you want to go to pickleball, you go to pickleball, you know. So it really is a, a very individualized approach. So the rotator cuff, we hear about that a lot, and I think that's uh, all muscular. How is that related to the shoulder? Yeah, those are, that's really what, that's the lasso that holds the ball in the socket. And uh, <laughs> the, the, fray, the fray, you know, there are four muscles uh, with their attached tendons that are most important for it. I would add a fifth in there, and that's the biceps tendon. The bi in biceps means two. And the biceps tendon, there is a short head and a long head. And the long head is generally considered to be part of the rotator cuff stability as oh, well. Okay. And the best way to describe the rotator cuff is as dynamic stabilizers, meaning they, got, they are working all the time to keep that teacup in the saucer, to keep that ball in the socket. And now... They're all together. If you look at the three bones that comprise the shoulder, the shoulder blade, the clavicle, the collarbone, and the humerus, the upper arm bone, those three, there are 10 different muscles that attach to those bones. But it's only those four to five that are important in regards to that, uh, keeping that shoulder functional and mobile. And that seems to mostly be a problem with older patients. Is that right? Or does it happen often to athletes too? Uh, it does happen to athletes. Um, however, the vast majority, if you look at the epidemiology of rotator cuff tears that come to medical attention, which is at least 2 million a year of, pe of wow. people that seek care for rotator cuff tear, the large majority of them are going to be over 45, 50 years of age. And as a veteran of this one two years ago and this one six months ago, you know, not a tear, but, but you know, rotator cuff tendonitis, yeah, it is. It it is it is. Uh, well, I'm I'm wimpier than I should be, but it is. It really is aggravating. It's very frustrating. Um, however, the majority of people you see with cuff irritation, impingement syndrome, what we call impingement syndrome, the majority of them will get better with conservative treatment with non-surgical treatment. But the again, similar to what we talked about with labral tears, the younger the patient, the higher the demand. Uh, on that shoulder, the more likely it's, it's going to need more than that. You can see acute 
rotator cuff tears in young individuals as a result of trauma. This time of year, mm. slipping on the ice, putting out your arm to catch yourself, yeah, that's a very common way to get a, a rotator cuff tear. But why older people? What is it about aging that makes it more common? Everything's about aging. That's <laughs> the the it really is a it is a wear truly a classic wear and tear phenomenon. You know that every whether it's the rotator cuff tendons or cartilage in our knees or whatever it may be, uh, we all got a set of tires that have a certain amount of tread wear, and uh, a lot of that tread is going to wear down. And what the rotator cuff has the the what, what the points against the rotator cuff is that tendons in general have a lower less of a blood supply than mm. other tissues like muscle and you know that impedes its ability to repair itself if the cuff tendons get irritated well it's going to be inflamed inflammation just means you're going to get more blood flow there well more blood flow is going to make it make it inflamed and swollen with more edema there's only a little bit of space between the shoulder blade and the ball for those tendons. If the tendons fill that space, they're going to get irritated more. So it's kind of this vicious cycle that, that irritates them. So the clock is kind of ticking um, when it comes to your, not that everyone's going to get a rotator cuff tear. In fact, in the, with the advent of MRI years ago, it became readily apparent that a lot of people have rotator cuff tears that are not symptomatic. So I've, mm. I've never had a scan on my shoulders. I'm on a don't ask, don't tell basis. And uh, if, it bothers, <laughs> if, it, if it bothers me enough, fine, I'll, I'll, I'll uh, uh, knuckle down and, and, and do what I have to do. But um, there, if it's not bothering me now, it's not going to bother me uh, uh, any other time. You had mentioned the biceps tendon. What, what's the relationship between the other arm muscles like the biceps and the triceps with the shoulder joint? Yeah, the, the, comparatively, the biceps tendon, that long head, and it goes right up the front of the shoulder, right over the front of the humeral head, the ball, and attaches to the very top of that saucer of the socket. And in fact, that tendon blends in with the, the labrum uh, where it attaches mm. at. And if you ever hear the term slap lesion, and slap means superior labrum anterior to posterior. And so if you imagine, here's the, here's the, uh, the socket and the labrum is up here. It's torn from front to back on the top, the superior side of it. That's the most common labral tear. When you read it, read or hear about a major league pitcher that's have, has a labral tear that's going to be repaired almost invariably, it's going to be a slap lesion. But what the biceps tendon does it, it, there's two main functions that it has. One is it, it gives the shoulders more stability so it doesn't tend to slip out the front of the socket. Ah. It also, when you, when you go to elevate your arm, you go to raise it up, it helps pull the ball down in the socket a bit so there's more room for it to go up. It stays up. When it starts moving, it starts up here. As the arm is elevated, you start to chicken wing. The, the biceps tendon long head pulls it down this way so it can it'll have more room to get up all the way overhead. Now triceps, uh, uh, you know here's a surprise three tendons. the <laughs> one of one of the three uh, attachments for the triceps is to the back of the shoulder blade and that helps it um, which is less important that keeps it from slipping out backwards what we'd call a posterior um, dislocation is much, much less common. That's almost always, dislocations are almost always to the front, to the anterior side. So when is shoulder surgery necessary? So if our listeners are going in, they have shoulder pain, they can't raise their elbow above their shoulder, what's a good way to dis make that decision? Yeah, it, it really is kind of a kitchen sink approach. Um, you throw everything at it. Now, if you have somebody that slips and falls on the ice and they come in and, the, you know, the next morning they say, my arm's been at my side all night long. It has been unrelenting pain. Everything hurts. And if I, I, I don't even, I, I can't, couldn't even sleep last night. Okay. That is something, if that's a young person that has an acute rotator cuff tear, generally it's good tissue in there. It, it isn't old enough to have worn down. It's repairable. Those are the cases where you'd say, okay, I think we should just go to the ultimate step first. Because if the rope is completely frayed and, and broken, 
it's not going to heal until you get the two ends back together mm -hmm. again. So now, um, if, if you take the usual rotator cuff patient, um, they've been treated with everything else. The litany of things that Andrew mentioned, the, you know, change your activities, rest and ice and, um, you know, anti-inflammatories, steroid injections, uh, physical therapy, all of that. And, you know, depending upon the case, um, if you look at the criteria that surgeons would look at, um, it's six months or more of treatment and not getting better, or it is uh, threatening employment, uh, quality of life. Uh, you know, one of the cardinal signs of, of, of really significant irritation of the cuff is pain at nighttime. You know, even just mm. the th thought of rolling over is, is kind of spooky. You don't, you used to sleep on that shoulder. You, every time you turn on that shoulder now, it hurts. So it comes down to failure of everything else. And a patient who says, my quality of life is unacceptable every single day. Um, and, you know, everybody knows someone in all likelihood that's had a, a rotator cuff surgery. And it's, you know, it's not from the surgeon standpoint, it's pretty straightforward. You know, it's it's a you know slot A tab B kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, you do a couple couple thousand of them. Well, I don't know what the problem is with it. When you're on the receiving end of it, you've seen those people with the big hay bales under their arm, you know, walking around because it takes a lot of recovery afterwards. We've been having so much fun covering the shoulder with Tim. We have so many more questions. We have decided on the fly that this is going to be an all shoulder all the time episode because there's just so much to cover. We're going to do knees in another episode. So we'll be back to the second half of the interview here on Dr. Doctor after the break. And we're back with all shoulders all the time here on Dr. Doctor with Tim Malay. So Tim, one of my personal stories, I've had to wear that shoulder immobilizer twice in my life for six weeks. Now, when I had my second shoulder surgery and I was doing surgery, you know, three days a week, I was told by my surgeon, well, it's going to be six weeks until you operate. And I told him, what if I told you I was doing something to you and it would be six weeks until you could operate? And he said, I would tell you to take a hike. Good. I'm telling you the same thing. So we worked out a deal and he trusted me because I'd been through it before in, in high school. And that was this. He said that I could operate and I was seeing patients within a week operating within two weeks of surgery, even though you're supposed to immobilize. He said, as long as I left my operating side shoulder, which I'd been had surgery on my right shoulder, as long as I left the elbow at my side and I could pivot side to side with my hand, I was good. Now, now how is that a thing? How is that doable for me? Yeah, that with your hand in front of the body, particularly, you know, if you, if you yes. draw a line down the middle of your body between front and back, if you're keeping your, your hand in front of you, that puts a lot less stress on particularly the rotator cuff on the shoulder joint itself. Also in this position, if it's a shoulder dislocation, the front tissues in the shoulder have a chance to heal better. If you want to put tension on tissues that are trying to heal and either impair or prevent their healing, that's when the when the arm comes up. That's what's going yes. to do that kind of further damage to it. So as we talked about, tendons with lower blood supply, same thing with the capsule yes. as well. They need more time and more immobilization to heal. There's some debate among orthopedic surgeons about immobilization. But it, ah. by and large, it's there's some that are really big fans of early mobilization. Let that thing get going. Um, I treat patients with uh, uh, patience and paranoia. Um, I, I'm a belt and suspenders <laughs> kind of surgeon. I, yep. I, I, I would like to see more evidence that that would do the job. But that you can do stuff in front of your body, just not tucking your shirt in on the back or right. not reaching behind you to, you know, get your seatbelt from the, from one side. Well, and the easy thing he told me after surgery, as long as keeping the elbow attached to my side, I was good. I wasn't even reaching out in front of me and I was able to operate thankfully, which was a, a blessing because I know I see so many people that they're so limited, you know, with their arm just held against their body and their hand, that would be so hard to live. Yeah, that's, uh, that's I, I do not want to think about how awful a patient I would be. Um, I mean, I, <laughs> I spent my lifetime preaching compliance, but practicing what I preach in a situation like that, Tom, would be, uh, it, it would require a lot of divine intervention. 
Well, and I, I think you guys are kind of highlighting on some of the reasons people are so they're not really excited about orthopedic surgeries for themselves, especially their second one. <laughs> um, so tell, tell us, you know, everybody's trying to put off surgery as long as they can. Uh, and a lot of times availing themselves to physical therapy. Tim, tell us about how that works, why, and who's a good or a bad candidate for that. Yeah. Physical therapy. Um, now granted I'm, I'm, kind of a big fan because of my background and, and my wife Beth's background as a PT as well. Uh, it, but even the the improvement in physical therapy routines for shoulder problems in the uh, 38 years or whatever it was since I was in PT school, I, I was trained in what I call the fake and bake and freeze and please days. You know, you either heat it up or ice it down and, you know, then come back tomorrow and we'll do it again. Um, and, yeah. you know, try to maintain motion, but not anywhere near the expertise and the under the biomechanical understanding that PTs have nowadays. In fact, um, uh, full disclosure, there were times if I needed a second opinion, whether it's a shoulder, a knee, a spine, any problem, um, probably a third, maybe even up to a half of the time, I had particular PTs that I would send the patient to say, take a look at them. Tell me what you think is going on here. Wow. Um, so now, now for PTs, um, they are, similar to most medical specialties because they tend to track towards a subspecialty. And oh. if you're looking for um, someone who's very good with shoulders, it's usually going to be a PT that is very sports medicine oriented. Yeah. That's, sure. that's where they, you know, that, that's what really attracts them. And the, I, I don't know the statistics uh, they're, they're a little bit vague about what are the odds of someone with a rotator cuff tear, a complete rotator cuff tear over age 50 that has physical therapy, how many of them are going to come to surgery? How many are going to avoid surgery? I would venture to say more than half of them can avoid surgery and, and maybe wow. two thirds or so. But wow. that's assuming you find the kind of PT that we're looking for. Um, I would, you know, if, I would encourage anyone to exhaust your work with a very accomplished PT and a really good shoulder therapist is going to look you in the eye and say, this isn't working. I've thrown everything I got at it. And I think you're kind of at that tipping point that maybe we, it's maybe the right thing to do. So is, how does this listener find this. that therapist, Tim? How do they know if they're trustworthy? Like you're saying? Yeah. I mean, you can, you can call PT clinics, and just say, do you have someone who specializes in therapy? And you can look at online ratings and all of that. But I don't know how this would translate to the physical therapy world. I would often get that question. A patient would ask me, hey, I've got this gallbladder thing. And I, you know, who should I see for that? Okay, I'm an orthopedic surgeon. You know, that's squishy stuff. That I'm sorry, I can't help you with that. <laughs> but what, you know, what I would tell them is I said, I, I tell you what you do. You go to the hospital at the cafeteria at lunchtime. And you sit down and have lunch with a table full of nurses and they will tell you who to see and they will definitely tell you who not to see. Now, granted, it depends on the community you're in. We're a small enough community that everybody, every, you know, word travels fast and there are therapists that are going to be well-known. You see somebody in a shoulder immobilizer and chat them up and see where they've been. But the, you know, the online rating systems and all, they are, they are helpful. I do find them helpful, but word of mouth in every field of medicine, from hospitals down to nursing homes, uh, everything in between, every level of it, word of mouth is the best advertising there is. Well, and Tim, as we're talking about the rotator cuff, you used a word earlier, uh, impingement. Then you talked about irritation of the rotator cuff, not a big problem, just a little problem, so, so to speak. What is impingement? And, and that's a word that gets thrown around a lot for shoulders. Yeah, it is really the the overarching term for irritation of the rotator cuff and its surrounding tissues. So again, ball socket and the rotator cuff, just for uh, uh, demonstration purposes, the rotator cuff is sitting up here. And above that, I need three hands. Above that is the shoulder blade. So in between the ball and the shoulder blade, you've got the rotator cuff all those tendons. Mm -hmm. However, between the shoulder blade and the tendons, you've got a bursa, 
which is a little thin sack of fluid that is like a lubricant to help mm -hmm. those tendons move. And surrounding the tendons is a tendon sheath. So if it's getting inflamed, it gets a little bit swollen. And every time that shoulder comes up, that space between the ball and the shoulder blade gets smaller and those tissues get pinched. That's what mm -hmm. impingement is. And if that's if that occurs repetitively and over a more prolonged period of time, you start to get breakdown of the tendon, leading mm. to degenerative tears that can be partial and at worst complete tears, where the you go from having a frayed rope, some fibers are still there to completely gone. So um, impingement really is the earliest stages of rotator cuff irritation. And ultimately, you know, the ultimate endpoint would be a rotator cuff tear. So there's the thing that led to my injuries was initially something called subluxation of the shoulder and then dislocation, which would pop in and then a dislocation that wouldn't. So what is a dislocation? What causes it? Why is it a problem? A dislocation is complete loss of the relationship between the ball and the socket in the shoulder. And if we're looking at it from, from the, the uh, side, this being the front of the shoulder, it's completely out. A subluxation is it's, it's coming partially out. A dislocation is, it's completely out of position. So the teacup is partially on the, um, the, what's the little thing called the saucer in a subluxation. Saucer. It's fallen off of the saucer in a dislocation. Correct. A dislocation, it's in the ditch. It's, it's gone out the front. And, 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 you know, 90, I think 90, more than 90%, probably more than 95% of those uh, are anterior coming out the front. The ones that go out posterior, if you see someone that's complaining of shoulder, uh, shoulder pain and it, you can feel around and it doesn't feel like, you know, anybody's home when it comes to the ball and socket. If they've, if they've had a seizure or an electrical injury, that's usually where you see posterior dislocations. That's the most because mm. that particular set of circumstances, just the muscle forces with those episodes tend to pull the shoulder backwards. So what keeps it out of joint when it dislocates? Why doesn't it slide back in? Yeah, it, well, if it does, there are some patients that have hyper, some individuals that have hyperlaxity. Mm -hmm. They're the ones that, you know, you, you ask them, they go to shake your hand, you realize their elbow's going backwards and they can take that index finger and they can fold it all the way back onto the yep. back. The people that are just very hyper elasticity, very, very lax ligaments. There are people that can, that are voluntary dislocators and they can right. relocate it just by moving the muscles. In, in 99.8% of people, once it dislocates, the muscles are trying to pull it back into place but it is dislocated to the front and in front of the, the, uh, the socket and it's locked in there to the mm. point where if you look inside a shoulder after it's dislocated and been put back into place, you can see a divot in the bone on the ball where it was mm. smashed up against the rim mm. of the socket. And that's just an indication of how much force there is with that, that particular injury. And there's a high likelihood of re, of recurrent dislocations and much more mm -hmm. common to see recurrent dislocations in young athletes. Uh, I, I suspect it's still the case, but at the military academies, um, particularly in their athletes at the military academies, if you dislocate a shoulder, um, you're going to get surgery after one-time dislocation because wow. they know with what they're going to be doing with their life, it's going to dislocate again. So they're going to take advantage. They're going to take control of that situation straight away. And same thing, if you've got uh, a football player that goes down, dislocates a shoulder and he's on scholarship at a college or he's a professional player, in all likelihood, they would do a surgical repair to lessen the likelihood of another dislocation. Yeah, the, the shoulder dislocation to me sounds like old socks where they, they used to be nice and tight when you put them on. Now they're just kind of tired, you know. How do you fix that surgically? Well, I want to go back into practice just to use that analogy now, Andrew. I, 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 I just love that, you know. As a guy who's a big fan of old socks and comfortable shoes, that's, that's perfect. That's perfect. Well, when you, when you, if it is really recurrent dislocations, um, 
because of that, that particularly that anterior capsule, that gets stretched out and it sags just like old socks. So you can do a repair of that capsule. And basically, previously you had a capsule that was like this and it gets all and what stretched out. what is the out. capsule? We haven't described That's, the capsule yet. Yeah, that, the capsule is kind of a ligament-like structure that envelops the whole joint. It keeps everything, it surrounds everything within the joint. Every joint is, has a capsule. So is the rotator cuff around the capsule? Are the muscles around the, that? Rotator, yeah, the capsule is intimate to the joint. The rotator cuff is just, the capsule lays right below the rotator cuff, but Perfect. it goes in front behind everything. Yes. And if that, if that, if that capsule is completely incompetent, whether torn or stretched very badly, not only do you repair it, you kind of do what we would call an imbrication. You bring it together again, but you even overlap it. And yep. those patients, typically they'll be immobilized just like you were, Tom, to, al- to take the tension off of that repair. To I try had to an imbrication done. Yes. Yep. yep. And exactly is right. is the capsule where the joint fluid is located? Yes. Joint fluid is inside the capsule. And if you take a a patient that has a very arthritic shoulder, any joint, a very arthritic joint, a post traumatic injury to the joint, and you open up that joint, there's a lot of fluid that builds up in there. Basically, mm. the joint fluid in those instances is like the fire department coming to a house fire. We're going to put all the water on it that we have. And the joint fluid, the, the membrane within the joint capsule makes that joint fluid because it's a way of trying to bathe that that joint, trying to get it under control, cool it down. Shoulder separation. What is that? Yeah, that that's a real interesting. You know, when, uh, shoulder separation is really not the shoulder that we've been talking about. The shoulder separation is an injury to the joint between the end of the clavicle, the collarbone, and the top of the shoulder blade, uh, and a portion of that shoulder blade called the acromion, the acromioclavicular joint. So just like everything else in life, we're going to shorten that to AC joint. There's no DC <laughs> joint. This is the AC <laughs> joint. So, and if you watch, joint. <laughs> that's, if you watch a, a football game and a guy is tackled and a 320 pound guy tackling him lands on top of the 180 pound guy and that guy his shoulder is the first thing to hit the ground it (laughs) drives the arm downwards the collarbone stays here and that's where the the, it's really not it it really isn't even a well put together joint it's it just butts up end to end and the only thing holding it together is ligaments and if this is the shoulder blade side here's the clavicle the force hits it just dislocate dislocates this way. It is a separation, um, and it truly is a joint dislocation in, in, when bad enough. Sometimes it's just a strain, and there's no disruption of the of the uh, alignment. But the difference between this joint and the true shoulder joint, this in all in vast majority of cases is not a surgical problem. Uh, you may walk around with a bump there. But there were some very, very good studies about 15, 20 years ago that well-controlled, just randomized these patients to an open repair because that was the thing to do prior to that if it was a complete separation or just rehab it and see what happens. Not only did they did the ones without surgery do just as well, statistically, function, pain, they did better. It was the same outcome without a scar, if not better. So it's not terribly common for that to be a surgical issue. That's a that's a common injury in in uh, young people too. I know that I don't have all the war stories you guys have, but I had one of those in high school um, ah, yeah. from uh, weightlifting actually, mm-hmm. and uh, mm-hmm. I don't know. It was frustrating, but no surgery, and here I am today. Yeah, yeah, better looking than ever, right? <laughs> so, so Tim, what should prompt one of our listeners to see their family physician or an orthopedic surgeon or a physical therapist with shoulder pain or difficulty with movement? It, you know, it, everybody has a little different pain threshold, and um, and and their their quality of life assessment is is also a big variable in that too. But the consistent things that should that should really make somebody think, okay, I've had it up to here. Um, one of the most common things I've heard from patients was I, it is con- consistently inconsistent. 
And what they mean by that, it's not bugging me 24 seven. I never know when it's going to be bad. And I mean, it's one thing to plan your day, knowing your shoulder is going to be painful the whole day. It's another to plan your day and not know that, you know, when you're playing with your grandchild, that's when it's going to Mm. flare up when you, or it's, it is, you know, uh, reliably unreliable. You know, if you're losing range of motion, if you're particularly losing strength, you look in the mirror at your two shoulders and if your affected shoulder uh, looks like it's been on sabbatical for about six months, it is just atrophied <laughs> and, you know, you're starting to see the bony outline much more clearly than you do here. Have, have, your, uh, have your spouse look at the muscles on the shoulder blade too because they atrophy where that, that spine of the shoulder blade, the bony ridge that goes from outer to inner in the back above and below that, that's where two of the rotator cuff muscle, uh, that's where the muscles are located to the tendons. And if you're not using your shoulder because you're guarding it, um, it will, those will atrophy and you will see a definite asymmetry between those two. I guess, Tim, just maybe one question here as we're wrapping up too. A lot of patients are worried, am I making this worse by waiting? You know, maybe I can deal with the pain, but is it getting worse for my lack of attention? Is there any red flags to watch for there? To as to not to a large extent, but I, I I have seen and I can still envision cases where I've told patients, oh, if we would have seen this six months ago, I think we'd we'd have a better outcome with it. Now, it usually doesn't get to that point because the cases where you tell somebody we should have seen you before they're almost always going to come in because that, if it comes to rotator cuff issues, particularly those are patients where it's a complete tear and you know, they, their elbow hasn't left their side, you know, other than when they lean to the side and gravity takes it out that way. Their, their profound weakness that is um, really not just limiting their daily activities, but uh, I mean, they are they are unable to do those. They just don't have a way to cope with it. It would so, be dramatic. It wouldn't be the nagging yeah. pains yeah. type thing. The, the cases that would fall into that kind of category when it comes to rotator cuffs, if you have someone that has the worst rotator cuff in Western civilization, you look inside there and, I mean, it's not just torn. It's, it's, it's a ghost. There's hardly anything there. There are patients out there that have what we call rotator cuff arthropathy. Now, we all know apathy means disease. And what that means is that the cuff has been gone for so long that they have an absolutely, the the arthritis in their joint, it's really almost a post-traumatic arthritis. It's so bad that they have, their only option is to have a shoulder replacement done. And Mm. if if you ever, if you hear a discussion of what's called a reverse shoulder replacement, mm-hmm. standard shoulder replacement. You put in a, a replacement socket, you put in a replacement ball, boom, you're done. Rotator cuff arthropathy is just the opposite. The socket becomes the ball, the ball becomes the socket, and the socket is what make takes the place of a rotator cuff that's no longer there. And that's been, first time I saw one of those about 15 years ago, I thought somebody's off their rocker. Uh, I mean, the x-rays look so weird. However, that is a very good operation for the for that particular diagnosis. Tim, yeah, this has been a day. fascinating interview on all things shoulder. Uh, we hope to have you back on the next joint, which will probably be the knee here on Dr. Doctor. But thank you for sharing your wisdom with us today. Always a pleasure, gentlemen. Thanks very much. God bless. And we are back with Dr. Doctor and the answer to the medical trivia question. Tom, you picked a bone one, the largest bone in the body. Tom, what was it? The largest bone is the femur or thigh bone, and the smallest bone in the body is the stapes. There's three in the middle ear, the hammer, anvil, and stirrup, and the stapes is the stirrup. It's tiny. The femur's big, really big. If you guys are watching Jeopardy, those will come up, so you're welcome in advance there. Yes, and that femur can hold 30 times the weight of your body. Yes, indeed. But Andrew has our top three takeaways from this wonderful episode. Yeah, it was kind of tough. I mean, this one was more of a a disease-based one, you know, this and that and that. But I'd say some overarching themes. Number one, uh, his respect for PT. Not only 
physical yes. therapists in specific and in, in the level of quality which they possess, but also PT as a way of treating. He said that, you know, maybe even more than half of rotator cuff issues could be treated with PT alone and not surgery. So PT is number one. Uh, number two, we were trying to, I was trying to milk it out of him when to see the doctor. You know, we were talking about that. At least what I took away is, hey, if there is an actual injury, it's worth getting an evaluation so that you don't wait too long. But if it's something kind of more nagging, more of a pain, usually those you can give it a little time, see if it gets better, goes away before seeking out care. Always okay to, to seek out care, but you don't want to wait on an injury. Um, and then number three, his, his favorite, Chris's favorite, uh, he's not here with us today, but the motion is lotion, um, which is, uh, you know, I, I always say if you don't use it, you lose it. But the shoulders, that's a good example, especially as we get older. Uh, use it and stay active. Those are great three takeaways. Uh, we're looking forward to having Tim again on the knee and maybe even other joints of the body. And we thank you for being with us for yet another episode of Dr. Doctor. You can find this and all old episodes on our website, drdoctor.org, and you can click on episode archive and search over 300 episodes by topic or guest. And for you people who have never checked out our YouTube link, today's the day to do it. He's doing a lot of stuff with his hands. Here's where they are, this and that. Check out the YouTube link for our video version. It's at the top of our homepage at drdoctor.org. And also while you're there, leave us a comment or a question or a good idea. Just click where it says submit a question. This is Dr. Tom McGovern. And I'm Dr. Andrew Mullally, and we're signing off until your next dose of Dr. Doctor. The views expressed on Dr. Doctor do not necessarily represent those of your co-host. Have a question for our doctors or a topic you'd like to hear about? Call or text your questions to the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598 or fill out the form at drdoctor.org. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Dr. Doctor Show and tune in for new episodes every Friday. Plus, find all our past episodes at drdoctor.org. This show is a production of the Spoke Street Media Podcast Network. For more great podcasts, visit Spokestreet.com.